Welcome back to the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson, coming up to Canto 19 of Dante's Inferno. And let's get right to it. We left Dante and Virgil at the end of the last canto, turning away from the filthy ditch of the flatterers, and, and we would expect the new canto to open with some account of what they came to next. But it doesn't. Instead, it opens with an invective against Simon Magus and his miserable followers. In, in case we're not sure what he's talking about, he adds that they are people who, in case we're not sure what he's talking about, he adds that they are people who, seeking gold and silver, prostitute sacred things. That is, they make money from the things of the church. Dante assumes that we understand what he's talking about, high officials of the church selling church offices for money, or accepting money in exchange for church favours, such as annulling a marriage. These sinners are called simoniacs, named after that Simon Magus, whom we'll say a little more about later. In any case, <laughs> in any case, here is their place in hell, in the third ditch of this eighth circle of fraud. Having first addressed Simon Magus and his followers, Dante then turns in the opposite direction and addresses the Soma Sapienza, the supreme wisdom, for the ingenuity it shows in carrying out justice here. Dante looks down into the ditch and can see circular holes bored into the stone flooring. The holes are all of the same size, about the same size, Dante tells us, as the opening of the stone cylinders the priests in the church of San Giovanni in Florence stand in when baptizing children, or, or the cylinders that contain the water the children are baptized in. The, the dynamics of this image are not clear, and scholars have several different ideas about what exactly Dante has in mind. But the point is that Dante calls our attention to the time he apparently broke one of these cylinders in order to save the life of a child who was beginning to drown in it. He swears he broke it to save life. And, and there's something unusual and uncanny about these holes. Out of each of them is protruding a pair of legs, from the feet all the way to the flanks, and running back and forth on the soles of the feet, from toe to heel and back again, are flames of fire, causing the legs to kick in constant pain. Dante, always on the lookout for the most significant details, spots the one pair of legs kicking more vehemently than the others, and the flame on whose feet is a more intense red than the others. Who's that one? he asks Virgil. I instead of answering, Virgil proposes to take Dante right down to the floor of that ditch so they can investigate further. He holds Dante against his side and carries him down to the bottom of the ditch and puts him down when they get right next to those kicking legs. Hello down there, Dante calls into the hole. Whoever you are, upside down like this, can you say anything? He's bending over, intently listening, like, he tells us, like a friar who's taking the confession of an assassin who is about to be put to death in the Florentine fashion of being placed head first into a pit and then buried alive. It's a cruel death for a cruel age, 
But nevertheless, even a convicted criminal is entitled to make his peace with God and confess his sins. And so the friar comes to hear confession and absolve the penitent soul. But the man about to be killed in this gruesome way knows that his execution will be delayed even just a little bit until he finishes making his confession. So after he confesses and is absolved and the friar is about to leave, he, he calls the friar back. Wait, I've I, I just thought of another sin I have to confess. And the friar has to lean over and listen to more. Well, this is the bent-over position Dante finds himself in as he listens to wh whoever it is down in that pit. The voice calls up, Is that you, Boniface? I, I thought you weren't supposed to die for a few more years. What's the matter? Did you get tired of abusing the church so much? You can imagine how surprised, not to say shocked, Dante is at this moment, especially in being identified with Pope Boniface VIII, his bitter enemy. Virgil prods him, though, to correct the error right away, and he obeys. Has he learned his lesson from that time with Cavalcanti? Okay, says the voice to the... Okay, says the voice below the writhing feet, but then what do you want with me? If you're so anxious to know who I am that you came all the way down here, let me tell you that I wore the great cloak. He means the cloak of the Pope. He was, we discover, Pope Nicholas III. He doesn't give his name, but he identifies his family, which is relevant, because, as he confesses, he made lots of money by giving jobs to his family. And then he explains the claustrophobic arrangement. It's his feet that are protruding now, but when the next pope arrives, that pope will have his feet sticking out, and Nicholas will be pushed further down into the hole, along with all the previous popes who have landed themselves there. Dante then does something bold. He cites scripture to the former pope, reminding him that Jesus gave Peter, the first pope, the keys to the church, but didn't ask for any money in return. Nor did Peter or any of the other apostles ask for money when they chose Matthias to replace Judas as one of the twelve. He, he's quite explicit about the abuses of Nicholas, but declares that he's restraining himself because of the respect he has for the office of the Pope, if not for the individuals occupying the office or abusing the office, who are like the great whore of Babylon. And finally, he speaks of Constantine, the Roman emperor, who, as they believed in the 14th century, had given the pope authority over the empire, which meant that the church was given temporal power and began its long history of amassing riches. All of this makes the feet kick even harder from anger or a guilty conscience, who knows? Well, this pleases Virgil, who embraces Dante before then carrying him back up to the ledge above the ditch, holding on to him even until they reach the top of the bridge over the next ditch. And then, down there below him, are the people found in the fourth ditch. The canto ends before we know any more. Now, there's really just one event in this canto, the ditch of the Simoniacs, but if we look... The canto can be divided into seven different sections. The introduction, with its very different opening addresses to Simon Magus and the Supreme Wisdom. 
the description of the ditch, the little dialogue between Virgil and Dante, their descent to the floor of the ditch, the dialogue between Dante and the Pope, Dante's sermon, and the ascent again out of the ditch and on with their journey. Let's say a few words about each of these sections. The introduction shows us without a doubt that for Dante this is a very serious sin. It has political, religious, and social implications, but it's a dangerous subject for Dante to be handling. The Church was the most powerful institution of his time, and it wouldn't do to get on its bad side, as he already was on the bad side of Pope Boniface. And notice, by the way, that while Dante praises the supreme wisdom for its great art in giving these sinners their just punishment, which at this point in the canto we haven't even seen yet, while he's praising divine wisdom, he's also, of course, giving himself a little pat on the back for having invented such an ingenious scene in his own poem. The Inferno is full of little moments of pride in his work, and almost always in indirect ways, like here. The description of the holes in the second part of the canto draws heavily on that central image of whatever it was that Dante did in that Florentine church to rescue the child in danger of drowning. What we know for certain about this incident is that Dante broke some part of the church, an act potentially of sacrilege, but he did this in order to save life. The churchmen, whose commission is to save lives or souls, have broken the church in a more serious way for their own gain and have put souls in danger with incompetent clergy. At the end of this account, Dante gives a very personal affirmation that the damage he did was not sacrilege, as apparently was being reported by some people back in Florence. He wants to redress the account and assert that it was a virtuous act of saving a life. Like Venedico in the last canto, Dante wants to clear up the accounts, only he wants to show he was innocent. Venedico has to admit that he was fraudulent. And then there is the image of the churchman being inverted, as, the, as though planted the wrong way in the earth, producing no fruit. As I mentioned just before, it, it was the custom in Florence to execute assassins by burying them alive, head first, in the earth. These simoniacs, then, are positioned like assassins, having, through their greed, killed the church, or part of it. And if someone became a priest only because he paid to get the job, and only so he could gather the money due to the church, then, presumably, he was not in a state of grace. And if so, then any sacraments administered by this priest would be invalid. Thus, if he married you, that marriage would be unsanctified, and your children would be illegitimate. If he heard your confession, that absolution would be invalid, and this, this was especially dire if this was a deathbed confession. If the priest was not in a state of grace, the absolution would not be effective, and you would die still in a state of sin, which means you would go to hell. Well, you can see how, if, if you believed this doctrine, these priests might well be compared to assassins. Oh yes, and there was a legend, I can't remember where I came across this, that the two Simons, Simon Magus and Simon Peter, 
the first pope, remember, that's sort of a relevant detail here, the two were traveling to Rome together. At the gates of Rome, Simon Magus, Magus means magician, flies up and around, attracting the people's admiration and perhaps, perhaps hoping for money thrown into his hat when he lands. But Simon Peter prays to God and Simon Magus suddenly plummets to the ground and, landing on earth, goes head first into the ground, ploughing up a hole. Dante taking a big risk in this canto is indirectly saying that many of the popes have been following the wrong Simon. The flames playing across the soles of the Simoniac's feet are a kind of perversion of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended like a flame onto the head of the apostles. But here the flame is on the other end, the feet. Its movement back and forth is another image of circular motion going nowhere. And notice that their flesh is being scorched with flames like, like those who are violent to God on the burning sands. What we see here is a worse case of violence to God because it also defrauds other people, showing a church that should burn with the holy fire of God, but instead that burning is merely on the surface. The third section of the canto is a short dialogue in which Dante asks Virgil to identify that particular pair of dancing legs. Virgil replies, If you want me to take you down there, you'll be able to ask him yourself. Dante doesn't just reply yes. He says that he's pleased with whatever pleases Virgil because he has submitted himself to Virgil as his master, and Virgil knows, even if he doesn't say it, that Dante will do what he, Virgil, wishes. This is significant in a canto that is concerned with the proper use of authority and submission to true authority. The descent down to the floor of the ditch shows us Virgil hugging Dante as he holds him against his side as he climbs down. <laughs> well, why can't Dante just make his own way down? Well, presumably it's very steep, and Virgil, being a shade, is lighter of foot. But don't ask how, if Virgil is just a shade, he has the corporeality to lift and carry a living body. The fifth section gives us a chance to hear this sinner speak for himself, and through his mouth give voice to the deep hostility Dante feels towards Boniface VIII. It is surely meant to be a moment of comic misadventure when the voice mistakes Dante for Boniface of all people. But, but imagine the danger the poet could be in for even suggesting that the present Pope, Boniface, was being expected with a place waiting for him in hell. And, and no, I don't know what the Pope thought of Dante's poem. I've never seen anyone dealing with this. We needn't go into Dante's sermon in the sixth part of the canto except to say that he sounds like some fiery preacher, and he gives us he gives us a good definition of simony. It's the combination of avarice and fraud. Remember that in the circle of avarice, Dante noticed that almost all the spendthrifts were clergy. And here they're not just spending lots of money, they're requiring it by fraudulent means. The church offices are not meant to be sold for profit, as the examples of Jesus and the apostles clearly point out. Dante's position as confessor, leaning over the convicted assassin, and now his role as preacher, might suggest that when the church is so corrupt, 
it's up to the poets to do the job for the people. And in the final section, Virgil takes hold of Dante again, this time not just resting Dante's weight on his side, but embracing him to his breast. And when he puts Dante down, we're told twice that it was suavemente, gently. There's been a change in the course of this episode, and Virgil recognizes it. Dante has now gained the confidence to speak out clearly against these corrupt sins, and to be closer back to the right path that he had lost at the beginning of the poem. I, I said earlier that we'd come back to Simon Magus, the magician in the Book of Acts, who saw the descent of the Holy Spirit on the Apostles and thought that would be a great trick to add to his repertoire, and offered to pay the Apostles to learn how to do this trick. From this he became the archetype of anyone who thinks the holy things of the Church are for sale, and hence the sin called simony, its practitioners called simoniacs. My spell check does not recognize the word simoniac. It, it's a word not in current use these days, but that doesn't mean the sin doesn't exist today. The churches, at least in parts of the world, are no longer powerful enough for the prostitution of its sacred things to be much of an issue, certainly not in our culture. But we can see this sin in our world if we look for what we regard as sacred and then see how people corrupt these things for money. Dorothy Sayers says people who marry for money are prostituting sacred things and thus are simoniacal. That has meaning only for those who consider the marriage bond as something sacred, not something to be entered into for personal gain. I, I don't think everyone would see it this way today. And of course, especially in America, there are the televangelists, preaching hellfire, but amassing great wealth for themselves from their followers who think their money is going to God. Then there's our very sacred devotion to human life and the preserving of life. W what then do we think of, say, a government that sells off parts of a nationalized health system in order to bring in more money or to throw more money towards those who might have contributed to the party? Has, has Dante now given us a term to describe this? Well, the test here, as always, is whether the image Dante presents to us will fit the modern examples, fit the psychological state, we might say. Someone in a big drug company who wants the highest possible price for a life-saving drug, even if it means some people will not be able to obtain it. Are these people stuck upside down in a hole like an assassin? Are they pretending to be repentant and confess, but are only temporizing, playing for more time? That divine flame, which could stand for their scientific talents, that should be descending on their heads, firing them with energy to do good, but is it now just playing back and forth on the opposite side of their being, their lowest nature, as they keep kicking and twitching for more profit? Well, that's one proposed application. You can think of others. And one final point. Let's not miss the way Dante takes on various different identities in this canto. He speaks with the voice of a prophet in the opening of the canto. He takes on the role of a kind of baptizer in delivering the child back to life out of the waters. He is like a friar as he bends over the figure in the hole. 
he, he's given the identity of Boniface VIII when Nicholas initially mistakes him. He becomes a preacher, citing scriptural text. And is it a baby, a newborn, that he becomes at the end, being held and carried in Virgil's arms? I'll leave that with you now, as we move on from Canto 19, on to the next ditch of fraud next time. See you then.